was a weird offertory. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the deal is with Justin today. He's smoking something. Or I don't Anyway, so uh, maybe we better pray. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Father, um, we ask that you would help us to preach your word and uh, to believe your word and to be transformed by your word. That's a living word. It's you, Lord Jesus. So it's in your name that we... Um, that we pray these things and, and that we ask, Lord God, that through the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus, you'd help us to preach your word and believe your word. Amen. Well, uh, hey, it's great to see you. If, if you're new here to the sanctuary, it's uh, good that you know for the month of June, we're kind of preaching on the subject of community. We're going to be forming community groups here in the next uh, little bit that go along with house churches that we've been doing. And uh, we're preaching uh, through the Gospel of John. And so these things kind of dovetail together. And if you remember, last time we left off at the end of chapter uh, 16. It's the night that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It's the night that the disciples have been arguing over who is the greatest. And Jesus makes himself the leastest by uh, washing their feet. It's also the night that Jesus informs the disciples that one of them will betray him. 
And another one of them will deny him. And, and then at the end of chapter 16, the 11, they all affirm their belief in Jesus. Then in verse 31, we read this. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus overcomes, and all the disciples fail. They scatter. And now I have a really important uh, question for you, and this is a serious question. Why didn't Jesus fire these guys? I mean, seriously. Why didn't, why didn't he just fire them? You know, he didn't even fire Judas. Judas resigned. Jesus was just honest with him, and, and Judas resigned. Why didn't he fire him? Now, now remember, this is the 12. Uh, 12 disciples, like the 12 tribes of Israel, this is the church. This is the church. Imagine if Jesus called in one of those um, consulting organizations to consult with him about his organization this, this night. I bet their very first recommendation would be fire these guys and create a dream team. Fire these guys, except perhaps for that, that Judas guy because he seems to have some real drive, a set of clearly defined objectives. And, and Judas is from Judah. Judas from Judah. Jesus, that's your tribe. He'll have your back. He has a dream for you, Jesus. A dream for you and for your organization. You know, I've certainly had my dreams for church. I grew up in the church. My dad was the pastor. I mean, church was my home. Church was my tribe. In 1982, down at Central Presbyterian, the Denver Presbytery fired my dad. The jealousy, envy, gossip, and slander was just palpable uh, to me. The church had been my dream, and now the church was crushing my dream. After college, I went to Fuller Seminary. That was the hub of the church growth movement at the time. In other words, that's where pastors went to dream dreams of church. And yet, I worked in a church. Bel Air Presbyterian Church, where my dreams for church kept getting crushed by church. At last, when I graduated and moved to Danville, California, I felt like my dreams of church were coming true. Successful program, tons of programs, great, great staff that seemed to have really genuine vulnerability and integrity. I remember thinking, this is Camelot. I wonder when Lancelot was, is going to sleep with with Guinevere, and, and actually he had been for quite some time, but not just Guinevere, a whole lot of Guineveres. And it was then that I discovered the very same thing had happened at the church I had been serving at before, Bel Air Presbyterian Church, the senior pastor uh, fornicating with women in the congregation. I remember one Sunday, a few months after the scandal had broken in Danville, I had been gone that morning at, at a youth camp because I was the youth pastor. And when I got back, my friend Chuck, who ran the sound booth, he grabbed me and said, Peter, you've got to see this. And he took me up into the sound booth, showed me a videotape of the service. 
At the start of the service, this young woman walked down to the front of the church, stood up in front of everybody with a legal pad full of notes and began confessing her sins. Well, the ushers came and got her and told her that was the inappropriate time and they had her sit down. And then Woody Bussey, uh, our missions pastor, uh, meek, mild, kind Woody Bussey, got up to do the prayer and he led into a silent prayer of confession. But she came down front, stood up, and began confessing her sins. Some of them uh, really, really, really bad. And, and re remember, the church is on pins and needles because they had just uh, discovered things about their senior pastor of the, of the last four years. The ushers came and got her to sit down. And then Dr. Dilworth, old uh, Dr. Dilworth, got up to preach the, the sermon. Dr. Dilworth, who was hard of hearing and rather out of touch, he, he got up to preach, and she went to the front of the sanctuary and began confessing this long list of sins. She confessed sins, some having to do with the former senior pastor. Well, Dr. Dilworth, he saw her over there, but he didn't hear her. Remember, he's hard of hearing. And so he walked over to her in front of the congregation, and uh, he, he, he leaned into her, and he said, What's that, my dear? We can't hear you. And just as he leaned over, uh, his lapel mic amplified these words for the entire congregation to hear and to be recorded on videotape amplified these words. And I confess to lusting after Pastor Hyatt. <laughs> and all at once, old Dr. Dilworth's eyes, they got really big. <laughs> and he stood up like this and he turned around and he just walked back up to the pulpit and he continued preaching his sermon as if nothing had just happened, as if there were no wounds in the body of Christ. And the ushers uh, escorted uh, this woman out. Well, Chuck shut off the tape. He looked at me, and I just laughed. I just laughed. And I don't think I was laughing with the church. I was laughing at the church. I'm sure it was a combination of fear that I might get in trouble for this somehow. I was trying to figure out how that would work. Can I get in trouble for this? Fear. <laughs> and then pride that I was deemed lustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> Although, no kidding, the other associate pastors that came up to me and they said this, they seriously said this, well, you know, Peter, she had mental problems. And, <laughs> and, and uh, so probably none of this really happened. Fear, uh, pride, and then wonder. Just wonder at how the show just went on. I laughed because church was a joke. A joke. On this night that Christ was betrayed, denied, and abandoned, I bet any church health team or consulting firm would look at Jesus and just say, uh, you're going to storm the gates of hell with this? That's a joke. You need to fire these guys and find your dream team. Ironically, it was a senior pastor in Danville who had been, who was unfaithful to his bride and unfaithful to the church who used to love to play this game called Dream Church. And so we'd play it on staff trips, staff retreats in the van. We'd go around taking turns, um, describing and picking people for our dream church. You ever played that? I bet you have. Because you know the church is your friends, your family, your relatives. 
the people in your life? Bet you have. What's your dream church? Have you found your dream church? How would you go about creating your dream church? You know, the closest thing I've come to achieving my dream church was Lookout Mountain Community Church. And I think my heart took credit for creating that dream. And yet I often felt out of place in that dream. And then that dream crushed me. So I've told you many times, it was while I was working there that, that I went to a conference in Canada where I literally, I literally heard Jesus say this to me. Peter, you don't love my bride very much, do you? My bride. And I knew that he was talking about the church. What is church? Ecclesia in Greek. It, it literally means the ones called out. It, it's the Israel of God. Those called out of the world for communion with God, in covenant with God, is the covenant com community. The, the church is Christ's bride. Paul tells us so in Ephesians chapter 5. John sees that it's so in the Revelation. And I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. She is his covenant bride who takes the place of the great harlot. Harlots are consumer brides who pander to men's dreams. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea is commanded to marry a harlot that will betray him. And I'm sure that part was not a part of Hosea's dream. And yet it's God's choice. Hosea is commanded to love her as God loves Israel, his harlot bride. Well, in Hosea chapter 2, the Lord says to unfaithful Israel, I will make the valley of trouble a door. And I will make a covenant. And I will betroth you to myself forever in hazard. Steadfast love. Covenant love. You see, you see the church is is God's dream, and God creates his dream with hesed, his word of covenant love that turns the harlot into the bride. You can't make this dream. You can't make it. You can't earn it. You can't create it. You can't even dream it. You see, the church is not your dream. The church is God's dream for you. And you are the church, God's dream. In 1938, Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the great theologian, I think some of you know who, who he is, he, he wrote this. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, God hates visionary dreaming. Whew. But think about that. You know, you can love your dream of a wife more than your wife. And with the dream wife, you'll murder your real wife. 
You'll say, I married the wrong person. She's not my dream. Right. She's God's dream for you. You can love your dream of, of children more than your children, and with your dream, you'll destroy your children, God's dream for you. You can love your dream of friendship more than your friends, and with, with that dream, you'll destroy your friends and any hope of, of friendship. You can love your dream of a Messiah more than the Messiah. Just like Judas. You know, it's our dream of the Messiah that kills the Messiah. It's our dream Jesus that crucified the real Jesus. And so do you have a dream of church? A dream church. Well, what's it doing to, to the real church that God has given you? Do you have a dream of the perfect child? What's that doing to the real children that God has given you? Oh, do you have a dream of the perfect friend? Well, how does that affect your, your friendships? Do you? Do you have a dream bride? I got this brochure in, in the mail recently, uh, a while ago. It said this. It said, imagine a bride who kept the house and managed all the finances. A bride who was in great shape and entirely glamorous. Imagine a bride who could shop for groceries and look like a supermodel all at the same time. Come to the Dream Bride Conference and learn how to create your own dream bride. And so I went. <laughs> of course, of course I would go. And a man stood up, a man stood up and said, this is my dream bride. Uh, she's a great housekeeper. She's a white housekeeper. She can cook and she can clean. Um, uh, get my program, get her to follow the steps in my program, and your bride can be a great housekeeper too. And then another man stood up and he said, this is my bride. She is a great money maker and money manager, manages the finances, get your bride to follow the program, and she will be too. And then another man stood up and said, this is my bride. She's in great shape. Get your bride to follow the program, and she will be in great shape too. And then another man stood up and said, this is my bride. She is glamorous and she knows 12 things every guy wants to know in, in, in bed or something like that. And he said, well, get, get your bride to follow the program and she'll be glamorous and know the 12 things too. And then another man stood up and he said he was from Stepford, Connecticut. He said, move to Stepford and we'll turn your bride into a dream bride. And then he showed, act, get this, this is actual footage of just your standard Stepford wife shopping at the local grocery store. Check this out! Hello, Carol. Hi, Matt. Hi, Bobby. Hello, Carol. How are you?
I can say to that is, wow, wow. You know what I mean, guys? Wow. So I came back from the Dream Bride Conference, and I enacted all the steps for creating a Dream Bride, and, and it wasn't pretty. <laughs> I spent a lot of time on the couch, alone, alone. George MacDonald wrote this. When a man dreams his own dream, he is the sport of the dream. That is, he himself is the point, and everyone else his own creation, a product of his will. In other words, to dream my own dream is to be forever alone. Dream, dream, dream. Dream, 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 dream. Whenever I want you, all I have to do is dream. I can make you mine, taste your lips of wine, any time, night or day. The only trouble is, gee whiz, I'm dreaming my life away. My life away. What's life? It's relationships. Relationships of love. Life is love, and God is love, and Jesus is the life. Are you dreaming your life away? Are you dreaming your wife away? Dreaming your husband away? Dreaming your kids away? Dreaming your friends away? Dreaming your church away? Are you dreaming Jesus away? Ugh. Judas did. Well, of course, I, I didn't really go to the Dream Bride Conference. <laughs> and yet I did. I get brochures for it all the time. I see them all over the place. They say stuff like this. Pastor, your church could be a prevailing church. Come to the prevailing church conference and learn how to make your church a prevailing church. Pastor, your church could be a relevant church. Could dream about that. Your church could be a purpose-driven church. Pastor, your church could be a growing church. Now, all those things are good. They're good. Just like housekeeping is good. That's why it's called good housekeeping. And just like smart management, physical fitness, and glamorous grocery shopping, they're all good. But you see the problem. I don't create the good. The bride is not my creation. She's not mine to judge. And she's not the product of my dreams, nor does she exist to serve my dreams. The bride is God's dream. And he's called me to serve her. A church is not a consumer item. And yet we pastors, we do this. We market churches as if they were consumer items. And we parishioners, we do this. We shop for churches as if they were c consumer items. And, and believe me, there comes a time when you need to change the location at which you worship. But as soon as we view God's church as a consumer item to fulfill our dreams, we pastors become pimps. And we parishioners become Johns. And we all turn the church, which is ourselves, 
into harlots. And in that way, our dream bride attacks the real bride and leaves each of us alone. In the same quote from Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he completes his thoughts. God hates visionary dreaming. But now, but now let me say this real quick. You, you, you know, God does give his people visions. He really does. And he gives his, his people dreams. But you see, those visions and those dreams are not our visions. They're not our dreams. It turns out that we are not the dreamer, but the dream. So Bonhoeffer completes his thought. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Accuser in Greek is the word Diabolos. Familiar? Means devil. And the accuser of the brethren is Satan. And he is a horror. A horror. In, in 1975, a horror movie was released titled The Stepford Wives. That grocery store clip was actually the very last scene in that movie. Very end of the movie, Joanna and, and Babae, those, those two women were robot dream brides, along with all the other women in the grocery store. Robot dream brides created by men to replace their real brides. In, in this scene, immediately before the last scene, the real Joanna finds the dream Joanna in the men's club where they manufacture these dream brides. see the dream bride murders the real bride, strangling her with a pair of pantyhose. <laughs> if Dietrich Bonhoeffer hadn't been killed by the Nazis, he would have totally loved that movie. <laughs> and, and let's be honest, guys. I mean, a, a, a dream bride, a Stepford wife, well, that might really seem rather attractive at first, right? But soon, I, I think you'd just be lonely as hell. And maybe that is hell. You know, a real wife is a pain in the side. It's true. Just ask Adam. It's biblical. A real wife is a, is a pain in the side. 
But a real wife is, is God's dream. Just like a real church is God's dream. And, and maybe God's dreams are better than your dreams. So anyway, I asked, why didn't Jesus just fire these guys in John 16? Why didn't Jesus, the ultimate Adam, fire his bride? You know, she's going to plunge a spear into his side, wound him, and then fall to her knees and say, surely this man was the son of God. Why didn't Jesus fire those guys? Or at least give them some clear directions like, like this. This would have been helpful, I would think. Peter, you're going to meet a guy named Paul and you're going to argue. Listen to him, Peter, because if you don't, there's going to be an embarrassing chapter about you in the book of Galatians and you'll feel all wounded. And church, in, in the 17th century, there's going to be a great deal of bloodshed around the issue of infant baptism. In order to avoid that, I just want you to know that I'm cool with it. Go ahead, baptize the babies. Why didn't you do that? And uh, in the 20th century, they're going to invent polyester, and I'm not cool with that. Don't, don't never, wear, never wear polyester. Well, but Jesus doesn't fire them or really even correct them or tell them how to make themselves into the, into the dream team. Instead, he just prays for them and then bleeds for them. The prayer is John 17 that we'll be looking at these three weeks. That was just the introduction, and we'll just begin looking at it this morning. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, remember about how they're all, all going to fail, and he's going to succeed. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, now the Greek implies that God the Father and God the Son are glorified by Christ giving eternal life to us, his bride. Eternal life. And every Jew knew the life is in the blood. You have given him authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. How many has God given him? John 13, 3 says, the Father has given all things into his hands. Anyway, verse 2, eternal life to all whom you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Listen closely, very closely. Eternal life, heaven is knowing Jesus. Heaven, eternal life, is knowing God through Christ Jesus. So can you get to heaven apart from Jesus? Well, no. Heaven is Jesus. Ah. Verse whatever, four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory I had with you before the world existed. What is that glory? I mean, when you've read this, haven't you, you wondered that? What is that glory? It's this glory the disciples have not yet seen, but that Jesus is about to receive. What is that glory? I mean, is it that he like just glows with light? Is that it? Because he already did that on the Mount of Transfiguration. All the disciples saw it. What's the glory? Maybe it's like, you know, superpowers. That he could like walk on water and calm raging storms and 
turn water into wine and, and a few fragments of bread into a great banquet. I mean, maybe it's that he could like heal people and raise free people from the, from the dead. But he's already done that. And the disciples already saw that. Yet in a few days, the disciples will see the glorified Christ and he will show them something that as of yet, they had not yet seen. Remember what it was? First thing. He shows them his wounds. And he says, Thomas, put your hand in my wounds and believe. In the Revelation, John sees all creatures praising this slaughtered lamb, this lamb standing on the throne as if he had been slaughtered, as if he had been wounded. And in the Gospel of John, as we've been discovering, we've we, we found that John believes that Jesus is enthroned upon his cross where he receives wounds, and out of the wounds flow blood. The life is in the blood. Eternal life is in the blood. And God is glorified by giving that life away. God is love, hesed, mercy. And you must say, well, wait a minute, hey, uh, how could the glory be his wounds? And Jesus just said, the glory I had with you before the world began. Did he have wounds at the, at the dawning of space and time? Revelation 13a, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, the cross is the moment that eternity. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The cross is the moment that eternity invades time. The cross is the revelation of God's eternal character, his, his name. The cross is the revelation of love. The dream lover. Our dream lover but he's not our dream. He's God's dream for us. God's dream lover for us, his bride, the bride of Christ. We crucified him with our dreams, but in that place God exposed his dream, his heart for us, bleeding for us. All things are created through him, bleeding for us since the foundation of the earth. Next verse. I have revealed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. See, he, he couldn't fire the disciples because they were a gift from God. Uh, God's dream is glorious, Jesus' glorious inheritance. Jesus says, you gave them to me out of the world. Out of the world. You gave them to me out of the world. Is, is, is God going to give Jesus more people out of the world? Because John already wrote, all things were given into, into his hands. Perhaps these are the folks given so far. I, I don't know exactly. Next verse. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And you have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. They, they have believed, but not well, right? I mean, that night they will all be scattered. 
their belief, their faith, is probably about the size of, of a seed, a mustard seed, a word, like a little bit of treasure buried in a field or an earthen clay vessel. I'm praying for them. Literally, I'm asking for them. I'm not asking for the world, but for those whom, whom, whom you've given me. Well, but, well, does Jesus not love the world? John's already, already written it. God so loved the world, he, he, he gave Jesus. And soon he'll pray that the, the world would, would believe. John calls him the savior of the world. Well, well, now he's asking, but not for the world. What's he asking? That they would be one. You know, the Nazis were one. They made everyone dress the same in, in uniform. Made them think the same. Everyone had to be the same. They literally turned women into Stepford wives for their soldiers. And they hung Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the gallows because he would not be the same. You see, when the world dreams of being one, what does the world do? The world builds the Tower of Babel, dethrones God, and makes everyone just the same, like in Stepford. But Jesus prays that his disciples would be one, and, and that's a, a different kind of oneness. We'll, we'll talk about that more next week and how it happens the following week. Verse 9, I'm praying for them, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of lostness. That's it's the same word, son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is lost. But check this out in verse 12. Jesus still refers to Judas as one of them. One of them that the Father gave him to whom he must give eternal life or to whom he is to give eternal life. And check this out, the life is in the blood. Hey, do you remember what gets poured out of those seven bowls of wrath in the book of Revelation upon the earth? Remember what that was? What was it? Jared knows. Blood, correct, you get A, Jared. It was blood. It was the blood of sacrifice. Whose sacrifice? Well, it must be the lamb's sacrifice. It must be Christ's sacrifice. It's Jesus' blood. If we reject it, it burns us, perhaps even destroys us, the old us, and, and yet it's life, eternal life, and that's the life that makes all things new. Judas was lost, and Judas went to hell, but Jesus conquers hell, and I do believe that Jesus still seeks and saves the lost. Well, anyway, Judas hated the idea of a suffering Messiah. It's not his dream. Hated the idea of a bleeding Messiah, and he certainly did not want to bleed for Jesus, but Jesus still bled for Judas. In fact, it was his judgment upon Judas and upon the whole world. 
that God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son to bleed. And all judgment has been given to the son, Jesus. That's John 3, 16 and John 5, 22. Well, Jesus keeps praying. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we know that that word is a knife, a knife that cuts the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That, that word is a knife that prepares the sacrifice. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be consecrated or sanctified in truth. And now this, this is really wild. If, if, if you know language stuff in Scripture, but, but Jesus is using the language of the priest in the temple as he consecrates sacrifices unto God. And Jesus is the sacrifice. And this is the night that he takes the bread and he breaks it, saying, look, this is my body broken for you. And in the same manner, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant. In, in some gospels it says new covenant. In another it says covenant. It's the source of all covenants all real covenants, good covenants. This cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. You see, it's on this night that Jesus forms the covenant for his bride and invites his bride into communion. And this is how Jesus is glorified. This is where he gets his eternal wounds. He bleeds for us in space and in time. And in this is love, writes John. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to bleed for us. God is love, and this, this is how he is glorified. And, and this, is, this is why Jesus didn't fire his disciples, I think, or, or at least part of it. This is why he didn't fire. He planned to bleed for them. And their sin would form the wound that would release the fountain. It's how he washes the harlot and turns her into to the bride. It's how he creates us in his image. He's, he, 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 he says in this prayer, I consecrate me that they might also be consecrated. Ah, I think it means I love them that they might also love me and love each other. I bleed for them that they might also bleed for me and bleed for each other. And so do you see the problem? That's not our dream. Nobody bleeds in Stepford. I love this scene. This is how Joanna discovers that her friend Bobby has been turned into a robot. Bobby, stop 
it. Look at me. Say I'm right. You are different. Your figure's different. Your face, what you talk about, all of this is different. Yes, yes, this. It's wonderful. Why don't you change your mind and have a cup? This is a new blend and very mild. Do you take cream? Look, I bleed. Oh, that's right. You take it black. Well, I cut myself. I bleed. Do you bleed? Why, look at your hand. No, you look. Joanna. going to give you coffee. I was just going to give you coffee. I thought we were friends. 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 But that's the problem. Robots can't be friends. They can't love. For they don't bleed. For in this is love that God bleeds for us. He gives his life. You see, my, my dream church, no one bleeds. <laughs> Especially not me. And in God's dream, we all bleed for each other. But nobody bleeds in Stepford. And so ironically, the closest thing to real church in God's God's dream, I think, in Danville may have been that day that that woman stood up and confessed her sins, real or imagined. She was bleeding out. Shame, sorrow, weakness. And I hope to God that someone found her that day and bled in the word, mercy, grace, love, sweetheart, in the name of Jesus, you're forgiven. The church is a joke. Did you know that? It really is a joke. It's a joke on the devil. He will laugh him to scorn. It's a joke on the devil, and it's a joke upon this entire world. There's treasure in those earthen vessels called the grace of God. And when the vessels are broken and thus bleed into each other, the body parts become a living body. You know, a body constantly bleeds, and that's not morbid. That's life. That's life. One body part bleeds into another body part, and the, and the body parts become a healthy body by circulating blood, which is life, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But that's not my dream. That's God's dream. I think we find it so hard to believe because we're just beginning to believe that well, maybe God's dreams could be better than our dreams. You know, it was my dream bride that first attracted me to Susan. Susan was the closest thing to my dream bride that would date me at the time. <laughs> and trust me, in 1977, she was hot. I mean, really just smoking hot. See, the brides are acting up. 
Just let me preach the sermon and you sit there. In 1977, she was smoking hot, but, but soon my dream began to strangle her, even, even crucify her. It caused her to break and bleed over me. But check this out. I don't think I really loved her until that day I watched her bleed. I still remember it. I watched her from a distance, walking in the rain, weeping. I watched her bleed for me. And then I began just a little bit to bleed for her. We entered a covenant, celebrated communion, and the communion was life. Jonathan, Elizabeth, Becky, and Coleman. Now, 28 years later, 28 years later, she's 50. And I'm going to be 50 in August. We've hurt each other. We have. We've bled for each other. Sometimes we've hated each other. Sometimes crucified each other again and again and again. And I think it's very safe to say neither of us is the dream lover that we dreamed of in high school. But I'm actually beginning to, to believe this incredible truth that I never ever could have dreamed a bride as good as Susan. Because you see, she's not my dream. She's God's dream. She's God's dream for me. The church, it's not your dream. It's God's dream for you. I think most of us go to church to judge love. You know what I mean? God doesn't care. This church sucks. Nobody, nobody loves them. They don't love here. They don't love me well here. We go to church to judge love, but God sends us to church to be judged by love. God is love. And we meet him in each other at the point of our wounds. And there he judges us, redeems us, and shapes us in his image. We're here to learn love and to be loved. Love is grace, and grace is blood, and the life is in the blood. Dark cups are wine. Light cups are juice. You're invited to come forward, tear off a piece of the broken body, and dip it in the cup. If you want God's grace, come to the table. But now this is what I want you to do. As you're coming to the table, before and after, I want you to watch the other people in this, this room as they're coming to the table. They enter into a covenant, and they celebrate communion a, a, along with you. And this is what I want you to hear very clearly. Those people, in fact, just look at them. Okay, look around. Go ahead, look around them. Okay, look at them. Because most, I think just about everybody here is probably going to come to the table. Um, Jesus wants you to come to the table. Okay, just look at them. Are you looking at them? This is what I have to tell you. They're not your dream. You'll find that out if you stick around here a while, okay? They are not, they are not your dream, but they're God's dream for you. And no one dreams dreams as good or as well as God. Even if sometimes they nail you to a cross, no one dreams dreams as good as God. Let's worship Him. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you for the blood 
And that seems so strange to say that. And yet that's exactly what happens on this day around the world. There's millions, maybe billions of people. The Israel of God gather around the altar and they praise you for the blood as we realize, oh, this is the sacrifice. It's you. You bleed for us. And you say that that is your glory. In the book of Revelation, Lord God, John looks and he sees that the bride shares your glory. And so, Lord, that means that every time I complain about having to bleed for a brother and sister, I'm complaining about the fact that I'm receiving glory from you. Lord, it's a privilege to suffer for you. And so, uh, Lord God, I pray that you would teach us to bleed for each other with joy. And, Lord, we realize that bleeding in this world really hurts. And yet bleeding in your kingdom is absolute ecstasy because the body is united as one and one part bleeding into another part is life itself. And so, Lord God, maybe that's why you subjected this world to futility and consigned all men to disobedience in order that we would learn to bleed as you bleed for each one of us and might be made in your image and enjoy you forever and ever. Amen. Well, now, let me say uh, before you go, because those are some pretty wild concepts. You, you might be thinking to yourself, ouch, but remember the ouch, the sorrow turns into joy, okay? We talked about that last time. You may also have thought to yourself this morning, well, come on, pastor. Aren't I supposed to dream dreams for people? Aren't I supposed to dream dreams for the church? Can I dream dreams for the people in this room? Can I dream dreams for church? Here's the answer, no. And yes, you see, when you dream your dreams for another, you kill them. But when you dream God's dreams for another, those dreams become life. And so you may say, okay, come on, let's get serious. What does that mean practically? Practically, it means what happens in this very passage. What does Jesus do when he reveals that the disciples are all going to fail? Uh, that it's going to be an absolute disaster that night. He, he doesn't criticize them. He doesn't fire them. He doesn't even give them an instruction list. What does he do? He prays. He prays for them. You know, I, I mean, I'm really like in the sermon this morning. I go to the grocery store, and that's like the Dream Bride Conference. There's all those magazine covers. I come home and go, honey, why don't you be a little bit more like Michelle, you know, uh, Michelle Obama or, or, and, and maybe a little bit like Zoe uh, Zaldana or whatever that she's on the Glamour cover, remember? Or, and a little bit like Cameron Diaz, and, and my dreams start to kill her. But you see, when I begin to pray for her, what happens? I begin to see God's dreams from my wife. I begin to see the treasure that she is. I begin to love her the way that Jesus loves her. And, and so this is what, what I'm asking you. Um, before you criticize church or you criticize your neighbor, be, be, well, put it this way, before you even give advice to a friend, pray for them. And, and please, pray for this church. Pray for this church and dream dreams for this church. But let them be God's dreams. In Jesus' name. Because God dreams really, really, really good dreams. Amen?
All right, so this is what you need to do next. We practice the greeting at the start. You need to go down and like continue with that around donuts and coffee. If you'd like prayer, um, we have um, some prayer ministry people who are absolutely awesome. This 